Hello, all right. Okay, good to see you. Why don't we jump into the study right away. Father, thank you for this uh, opportunity to reflect on the confession. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us as we think about it to compare what we read with scripture and uh, help us, Lord, to be enriched through the study. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. Um, we're going to jump right into uh, chapter 32. Um, so we're near the end, two more chapters to go, 32 and 33. And what we have uh, at the end of the confession is the end of things. We're looking at, in chapter 32, this, uh, the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. And then following that, the last judgment. So that's chapter 33. One, one thing to note here is that when we talk about last things, most folks run right to uh, the debates surrounding millennialism or the, the millennium. You know, is it pre, is it post, is it ah? You notice they don't get into it. It's not in the confession. Now, I think there are some, you know, uh, possible ways to interpret why um, or possibilities when it comes to interpreting why. But do you have any thoughts as to why they don't get into it? Yeah, Bertie. It's not relevant to salvation. Okay. Uh, I think, yeah, if, at the same time, though, there are lots of things that we maybe see in the confession that aren't directly related to salvation. For example, the civil magistrate and the relationship we have to the civil magistrate. That's, I think it's some, something worth considering. Yep. Other thoughts? Yeah, David. Isn't, uh, uh, pre, isn't dispensationalism with premillennialism that 19th century thing? I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, so David's point was is that the whole premillennial, postmillennial debate uh, is really kind of a 19th century phenomenon. And this precedes that. So this is older than the debate. Uh, so people weren't as exercised about all of that. Um, you could say that there was a de facto amillennial position then. Kind of just the way it was, you know, people just weren't thinking in those terms. Now, can you think about reasons why maybe people weren't thinking in those terms beyond the sort of the, the you know, 19th century debates? Christendom. So they didn't look at the world uh, in quite the same way we do. Um, think about it this way. Um, if you were in a nation that was a self, sort of the self-understanding of that nation was, we're Christian. We're Christian. Um, everybody born in here is a Christian. Now, it may not, you may not be a good Christian. <laughs> you might be a Christian who's going to go to hell. <laughs> but in terms of the way the state is informed and ordered, it's understood that we live in a Christian country. I mean, even in our own country, many of the founders said we live in a Christian country. It wasn't even like a, a debate. It wasn't even like we need to make this place Christian. It was, this is it. This is where, where we live. Many of, the, many of the assumptions that we make about kind of the situation we find ourselves in have to do with some things that were occurring in the 18th and 19th centuries and early 20th century with a kind of very self-conscious de-Christianization that was going on. Um, you know, I can give you lots of examples. Um, 
I remember one time, you remember Ralph Reed? He used to be with something called the Christian Coalition. So this was like kind of after the moral majority. Uh, this is the early 90s. So Ralph Reed was this sort of up and coming, very public intellectual, and he was the head of the Christian Coalition. And he said something uh, that anybody who had a background in philosophy just would have laughed at. Uh, he said essentially that uh, kind of utilitarian John Stuart Mill understanding of, of freedoms uh, was uh, something we should all be able to like get on board with as Christians. What was that? So long as I don't hurt you and you don't hurt me, we're free to do anything we want. That's the utilitarian understanding. So what is that kind of, how does that get worked out? Is that a Christian way of thinking, by the way? So in a Christian way of thinking, what is freedom? Is, it free, is freedom to do, you're doing anything you want to do? No. That's like a formula for slavery. Your passions need to be directed toward the truth. And if, you're, if, you're, if they're not, then you are a what? Slave to sin. So just kind of doing what you want so long it doesn't hurt anybody. But then how do you determine how, what hurts people? Is it just like, you know, you hear someone like Thomas Jefferson say, you know, you're, you remember the, the Danville Baptists? Of course you don't, because they don't tell you that stuff in school. <laughs> but the whole statement, separation of church and state, wall of separation, comes from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to a bunch of Baptists in Connecticut. It's not like a, a statement that was signed off on by, you know, the Congress, you know, or, you know, or any of that. He was just basically trying to say, hey, you, know, you, you Baptists, we know that you're kind of against uh, established religion. You know, we just want you to know there's a wall of separation between church and state. And then he goes on to talk about so long as, you know, whatever you say doesn't break my leg, you're free to say whatever you want. Kind of live however you want. This is, a, this is an understanding of freedom that is not rooted in the Christian faith, it's rooted in a kind of mechanistic uh, sort of understanding of the world. So, uh, you know, just think about it this way. If, there are lots of things that you could give yourself over to that maybe at one level don't look like they hurt anybody, but they really do. Because you, there's a spiritual dimension to our lives. So a person might say, well, you know, what I watch on television, what does that matter? I'm just, I'm not hurting anybody. It's just me. Well, when you harm your own spiritual health, that's obviously harm. Who's affected? God's affected. Does that matter? Is your wife affected? Is your kids affected? Are your kids affected? You know, yeah, the, they're, they're kind of the, the effects uh, are measured in a sort of different framework. So I, I, the thing I'm getting at is that the larger sort of understanding of the question of uh, the eschaton sometimes is wrapped up in a, in a, in a sort of a, a thought that the world's going kind of going bad in a bad direction and that, that there's going to be something that happens in the future that will correct it. And there were basically, you know, the uh, dispensationalists who had a particular approach in thinking about uh, in the, the millennium and, you know, things related to that. But it wasn't really something that was as much a it wasn't as sort of significant, in, I, should, I should say, in some of the, some of the 
theologians of the past, with some of the, you know preceding the, the modern era. I hate to deflate you if you're like really into that kind of stuff, <laughs> but it's just that's it just the kind of the way it was. Yeah. Wouldn't it be fair to say that the founders were primarily post mill in their thinking? I don't think it would be fair. The, the, the pilgrims that came over, Oh, the pilgrims. Yeah, if we're talking about the pilgrims. Yeah, the pilgrims. I think that, yeah, I, I think, but again, it wasn't like a, we're against the premillennialists. It was more or less they were thinking about trajectory of the, of the history of the world and probably it was more wrapped up in missions than it was politics. So the idea would be the gospel is going to, you know, you know, spread and reach everybody. And when it does, then you know we'll live in a different kind of world than we live in now. But when you when you when you listen to um, you know the debates, uh, that's not kind of the thing. That so anybody here remember late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey, and all that kind of stuff? Best book ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a real phenomenon. It was uh, if you're not aware or familiar with it, but it was definitely a, a kind of a premillennial take on things. And it, and it was really popular at a, at a period of time where everybody was like kind of negative about the future. So this is the other thing. It's interesting how these things kind of parallel each other. So if you think about the early 70s, the Club of Rome, anybody ever hear of the Club of Rome? That's like the, uh, the World Economic Forum before the World Economic Forum, Club of Rome. It was like a pre it preceded the World Economic Forum, but they had all the same agenda. All the same agenda. And they were talking about ecological disaster, overpopulation, stuff like that, you know, plague. Think about Charlton Heston in the early 70s. Trilogy of movies, Omega Man. What was Omega Man about? World plague. I'm not watching Charlton Heston. I'm just not going to The only thing I'm saying is, is that this was in the air. Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, soil and cream. Now, when, now when, when they came out with that product, soil, and I thought, what are these people thinking? Haven't they seen soil and green? <laughs> so there, but this was like kind of in the air at the time. Everybody was thinking about the end of the world, and that's why Lake Great Planet Earth just took off like crazy because everybody was like, the world's coming to an end. Boom, you know. So it wasn't like uh, we were just like uh, the only group that was talking about. It. We were actually kind of riding a wave of negativity. Uh, 19th century, the revivalist movements coincided with the romantic, romanticism. And it's kind of a get back to nature thing. So everybody's building stuff out in the woods, tent meetings, camp meetings, they were all the rage. You know, you can go back east and see the, the, the old camps. But everybody was like getting out of town, they go into the, so the revivalist movement didn't happen in a vacuum. There was a larger sort of cultural sort of uh, momentum that the camp meeting movement took advantage of. I don't know if they really thought it out, but it did. And sort of the whole premillennial thing uh, is part of kind of a kind of end of the world fever. So that's not to say those things aren't important to think about and taught, discuss. But what I'm trying to get at is, is, is what they're doing here, you know, we're talking 17th century, is they're not thinking about those things. They're thinking about, you know, the end of the world as it, you know, relates to people, you know, the resurrection, the last judgment. So 
implicit in that is that the Reformed, you know, you could have people who are, you know, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, all able to say, I'm on, I'm, in, I'm on board the Westminster Confession of Faith. And you do. You get all those groups that are on board with it. Anyway, uh, so if you're going to have a standard and say, like, our institution is going to be post-mill. Like, I'm on the board of New St. Andrews College, and they say, are you post-mill? If you're not, you can't be on the board. It's okay. But that's their standard. They said that's one of the things that is going to be uh, a standard of your participation. Okay, with all that said, let's, let's take a look here at chapter 32, the state of, man, of men after death and the resurrection of the dead. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in, in torments and utter darkness, reserved uh, to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. So obviously that's a reference to purgatory. Okay, so let's let's think about this. Uh, so what we what we see here is that human beings are composite. We are soul and body, spirit and body. Um, this is an interesting thing to, thing to think about a little bit, reflect on a little bit. The distinction between uh, spirit and soul. Have you ever thought about it? Are they synonymous? Are they referring to exactly the same thing, or is there a subtle difference between the two? Any thoughts? I think most people use them uh, interchangeably. I don't think most people make a distinction. Um, but the Apostle Paul did. He, I can't remember the scripture off the top of my head, but he delineates, you know, spirit, soul, and body. So he talks about a difference between spirit and soul. Sometimes, so when we, let's just reflect on a little bit. Like if somebody says, I'm a soul man, that's soulish, you know, he's got soul, you know, what's that, what's being referred to there? And I'm just talking about popular parlance, I'm not talking about the Bible, <laughs> but I, I do think there's kind of a connection. Soulishness often has to do with like feeling, kind of the emotional life. Uh, somebody who's, who's, soul, who's a soul guy is kind of like into sort of like sort of the kind of the dimension of his life or, or her or a woman, if you're talking about a woman, that is able to kind of feel deeply, if you know what I mean, um, and express it well. You know, uh, you know, like somebody sings who's just really just soulish in terms of their expression. You kind of feel it. That, that's kind of what soulishness would mean. But the spirit is something that is higher uh, and is directly related to God, comes from God. So there's a sense in which the soul is kind of like this middle ground between the spirit and the body. 
Now, when we say, you know, when a person say, well, you know, we're able to identify certain things that are going on in a person's brain when they feel certain things. So they have, you know, we'd say, well, that makes sense because there's a kind of sense in which our souls reflect our, our physical state, you know, that kind of thing. Like when you look out on a beautiful day and your spirits are, are lightened, so to speak, right? Any thoughts about that? It's just it's kind of fascinating to think about. You know something? I didn't know not knowing God because my parents started teaching me even at three years old. That's the way it's supposed to work. And um, I didn't didn't believe in God after a while. That, that, well, I, I moved up here. It was really it was wet. It was nasty. It makes you want to believe in God, then, I guess, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I just told my dad, and I said, I don't want to go to church anymore. Well, this is an interesting thing to think about. So, like, cause, and I'm, I'm glad we're kind of going here. So, the relationship between our feelings and our faith. Yeah. So, there are a lot of things that can affect our moods. Bad weather. Feeling down. Now, are you, now some people are like into rain. Are you like one of those sort of melancholy types who like the rain? You know, makes you want to curl up with a book and read and drink some tea. <laughs> so you're not, you're a sunny, you're a sunny, you, you're all about the sun. You should be living in like Arizona or Florida or something. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but some people are like that, you know, they're just like, I, I need all the sun I can get. But then you run across people who are like from Arizona, say, I wish it would rain. I just need some melancholy in my life. I just, that's the way I'm, I'm into it, you know, that kind of thing. But, I, but the relationship between the feelings and the faith isn't something to think about. So like, I'm reading Jeremiah right now. There is a guy that was depressed a lot, right? You know, he's always down. Why? Because he'd been told that some bad things are gonna happen. And then he'd be told, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go, you get the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord is like, go to the temple, Stand in front of a bunch of people, king, nobles, priests, prophets, tell them they're all going to be destroyed. And they're not going to even listen to you, but do it anyway. You know, then they arrest them and try to kill them and threaten them and <laughs> all this kind of stuff. You know, it was kind of, it was kind of a downer. <laughs> it's kind of a downer. I've actually come across people who thought that maybe he needed some like, uh, I don't know, Prozac or something, you know. It's like, no, I mean, if you were told these things, <laughs> you'd be kind of down too. But it didn't, it wasn't uh, sort of the source of his faith, right? It wasn't his feelings, it wasn't the source of his faith. There was a, so, so I, I served in a church in Cambridge and the founding pastor was a guy named John Short. He was long gone by the time I got there, but he wrote a book called The Bible Christian. And I read it and he's got this great line in there. I feel just as good when I don't feel good as when I do feel good. <laughs> Because he was, he was, he was talking about his faith, right? There's a, there's a part of yourself that can kind of be the stable center, and then this other thing may be going all over the place. One day you wake up and you're down. Next way you wake up, you're kind of on cloud nine. How does that relate to your faith? Does it determine your faith? Is your faith based on your feelings or is it based on God's promises? Based on God's promises, of course. So. Uh, some, now, it doesn't mean that uh, your feelings don't affect your ability to believe sometimes. Maybe, maybe it makes it really hard to believe sometimes when you're, when you're so down. Or maybe so many bad things have happened, you're kind of feeling like, the, like you're under the, 
a cloud all the time or something like that. But that's particularly where it's important to believe. It's at moments like that where it's really, uh, you know, where the faith really needs to be exercised. We have this idea that faith should be easy to exercise. I just kind of feel it, man. I'm just always on top of the world, believe in all kinds of good stuff. But don't we, don't we appreciate people who are able to believe in spite of all of the stuff that they're going through? It's an appreciate, we can appreciate it. Any thoughts on that? I think my faith is affected by the weather. Well, I hope your faith is not affected by the way. Your feelings can be affected by the weather. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Keegan. I was going to say, uh, like fear. We were talking about feelings and how fear can affect us yeah. on different levels, right? Like the almost to our core, like in a soul way, mm-hmm. we can feel like the fear of God uh, when we in, right. when we encounter <clears throat> sin that we need to repent of or. Right. Um, we're confronted with our failures or, or something. Um, that fear of letting God down or letting others down um, and how that affects our faith and our standing specifically. Yeah, so you can use one kind of fear to combat a different kind of fear. So like the, if you're afraid of maybe the consequences of taking a stand for what's right, you can say, I'm more afraid of letting people down or, or betraying God's truth, and therefore I'm going to say what needs to be said anyway. And that's what you see with Jeremiah all the time. He's just like, you know, he, he's pretty straightforward. I'm feeling really down today. <laughs> Different places in, in Jeremiah. Um, but getting back to getting back to this to the to this first paragraph, uh, the, the, the idea that we are a composite, that we are body and, uh, you know, that's be the physical dimension of our lives, and then that this immaterial part of ourselves, whether we refer to it as spirit or soul, uh, that means that we're kind of amphibious, if you could say. Now, an amphibian is a creature that can kind of operate in two environments, right? So uh, human beings can operate in two environments. Physical worlds all around us, right? We're interacting with it all the time. But there's a spiritual reality that we're also uh, in participating in all the time. Um, and we may not consciously think about it that way, but you could say that in a sense, you know, our heads are in the clouds. Our feet are on the ground. We're kind of living in these two realms all the time. And as you know, Christians, we know that uh, we want God's will as it's done in heaven to be done on earth, so we're kind of the bridge, you could say. It's one of the ways to think about dominion. You know, it's not just our will that we're trying to impose upon the world, but it's God's will that we want to see reflected in the order of things. Yep, right. So um, there's the line there that the souls neither sleep nor die. So mm-hmm. my, my wife used to be in a denomination up in New England yeah. that uh, believes in what's called soul sleep. Yeah. We used to be in Pella, Iowa, and the bookstore was in this old church that had that said in, uh, it had a Dutch word on it that meant the soul sleeper church. 
you know, so they were kind of on the out, outs. I mean, they were in, in the middle of town, but they were kind of on the outskirts of society, you might say. So I, I just didn't, I didn't know if you wanted to address some yeah, of that well, issue or. Yeah, the idea being that uh, there's this kind of, again, third possibility, uh, this kind of limbo state. But when it comes to soul sleep, um, was it the Adventists? Okay. Advent, Advent Christian. Yeah. Seventh-day Adventist, Advent Christian. Yeah. Even Luther toyed with the idea, which is why Calvin held off publishing his first theological work, which was going to be a critique of that view. Yeah. Well, there is a reference to souls sleeping. You know, we shall not all sleep. You know, so you've got that reference, and that's used to be, you know, kind of the basis for that. Uh, but to be absent from the body, be present with the Lord is the basis for this, <laughs> right? So um, the idea that, you know, so sleep could be understood to mean death, just generally speaking, you know, um, that a person um, has, you know, you see this even, you know, metaphorically when um, we have the conversation concerning the, what's gone on with Lazarus, right? Uh, and, you know, the Lord says he sleeps, um, and they think, well, he'll get better then. You know, <laughs> you know, the idea that he's just kind of sleep, and then Jesus is referring to it, you know, using it as metaphor for death. So does the metaphor, is a metaphor to be taken literally, that there's a kind of state of, of sort of, of lack of consciousness, I guess, would be the thing? Uh, or are we consciously present in the, in the in a, you know, with the Lord. And this is saying we're consciously present with the Lord, but that's the, that's kind of the debate. Yep, David. Is it, is it fair theologically to grab onto Jesus's parable of the rich man of Lazarus and use that as a, I don't know about a proof text, but pretty much <coughs> leading into the fact that why in the world would Jesus use a parable that had no relevance whatsoever? Like here's the son of God. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I've, I've seen it used that way, and I think it's a good it's good use of the parable as a, a, a way to underscore uh, the you know the state of people after death. I see, kind of like what Brian was saying. I grew up in a denomination. There were four places you could go yeah. when you died, right. and uh, and I see that at the end there, they're kind of like, hey, there's there's only two guys, right, so, right, so. Well, uh, you're thinking limbo, purgatory, and gotcha. Yeah, so uh, what's interesting is that the Orthodox also reject purgatory, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. So it's not like the Protestants are the only ones. They're like, yeah, these Roman Catholics, they dream this thing up. There's, there are some interesting ways that the, the Eastern Orthodox and Protestants are on the same page with certain things, and this is one of those things. Now, the idea... This is interesting because right, I'm on the editorial board of Touchstone. We just had a couple of uh, articles submitted. Uh, one was a critique of, oh, what's his name? The, the Orthodox David um, Bentley Hart, Bentley Hart his, his book on universalism. So uh, Robert Young just, just destroyed it uh, in, a re in a review. And then we had another uh, Catholic author who submitted something on purgatory. So those are both going to be in the same issue. Um, but, you know, the, the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory, if you think about it, is concerning purgation. It's 
about purgation and, and the understanding of purgation. So let's take a look at, at, at the confession here. Uh, right following that, uh, immediately returned to God who gave them the souls of uh, the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness. So the purgation is instantaneous and accompanies entrance into God's presence. So it's not as though we don't believe in purgation. We do. It's the way we understand how it is um, brought about. So purgation means purging, right? Clean, cleansing. So the Roman Catholic understanding of purgatory is there's this place where you go where this purgation process occurs and it could take a while, <laughs> thousands of years perhaps. But at the end of the process, you are in this final state of perfection. So what uh, you know, the Reformed are saying is, well, yeah, we, we believe in purgation. It's just not uh, the way you've described it. It's not a, like a third state. Yep, Cindy. So would it be the, the doctrine of purgatory, Catholic view, that would put someone in the um, ability to believe that, you know, they had a heart attack, they basically died, they went to heaven, they resuscitated, they come back, and they're able to tell us all about their experience. Yeah. So how do you address this come back to life, I've been yeah. with Jesus, I was in his arms, and then he sent me back? Yeah. Are you thinking about how we should sort of address it as a church or how I do? <laughs> My, yeah, yeah, that's better because usually I would just say that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that what we, what we want to say is uh, that, you know, the book, you know, the scriptures are complete. We don't have additional revelation and it appears that you're giving us some new information. And uh, based on, uh, what we believe to be the case with regard to the sufficiency of Scripture, we can't accept anything you're saying as authoritative. You know, you, you may have, you know, been in a mental state, you know, you may have been dreaming all this. We're not trying to say you're a liar necessarily, or that you're trying to make a big book contract and sell millions of copies to ladies who wonder where their cats have gone, you know, things, things like that. <laughs> Uh, I really do think that that's a lot, a lot of times, you know, those, that, that kind of literature is meant to, or it's, it serves that role. I, I was having a little fun with the cats. But there are, there are people who are genuinely concerned about their relatives, you know, what's become of them. And these, these kinds of things are, can be uh, kind of a false comfort. Not that I want to torment these people or anything, but it's just, just, you know, we're making promises here that we can't substantiate and it's based on your experience, and there are lots of things that can influence your experiences. There's that great line in, in uh, Christmas Carol where um, Ebenezer Scrooge is reflecting on dreams and is the dream an undigested bit of beef? In other words, is there, is, <laughs> sorry, is, this, is this just kind of like something going on in my head because you know, I'm having... Uh, Stomach ache, or is this real? Yeah. Just, just a quick comment on the purgatory thing. If I recall correctly, I haven't looked at this a long time, but I, I think it's a passage in the Apocrypha where they derive that. And of course, you know, you go all the way back to Westminster Confession One, 
the divines are rejecting the apocrypha i mean maybe it has some historical interest but in terms of doctrinal content we don't use that uh, to so yeah yeah be you know apocryphal well we use the term apocryphal <laughs> sort of like uh kind of uh something has been handed down to us that doesn't have authority um and we can maybe look at it in the same way we look at many uh, things in antiquity that we think have some value. So, you know, I'm known for like saying, well, you know, like Aristotle has some value. I'm not saying everything Aristotle said is right, but there's some value there. And, and I also think another thing, you know, the soul sleep, I think is kind of an overreaction to some of the speculative stuff that the Church of Rome was saying about the state after death and all of it kind of failing to focus on the, the resurrection of the body of the true hope. You know, that's the blessed hope. It's not going to be with Jesus when you die. It's the fact that we're going to be, you know, it's the next paragraph of the, of the confession. Well, you know, yeah, related to this, you know, the, when it comes to uh, our state of sort of existence in, in, in hell, you know, what is, what is that like? We, we use the most painful imagery we can find uh, from the world. You know, uh, and it's scriptural that, that you know this is what we have, um, where the worm dieth not, you know, and the flame is not extinguished. So it's scriptural language, but um, so it, it's intended to to uh, alarm us and get us to repent. At the same time, I think pretty you know very sensitive people will really obsess on it. I remember, like, with my, my second son, he was really kind of taken with the fires of hell. And he was, like, maybe five years old, you know, and, and his, his imagination was just, like, on fire <laughs> with the fires of hell, you know. And, you know, how do you, as a father, you know, how do you deal with that? I think one of the things you do, you do is you don't want um, kind of an overreaction against based on kind of an emotional kind of state, right? Um, so, you know, there's a sense of which what we know about anything following our lives has to draw on things that we can, can sort of relate to in our world. And what we're, what we're saying is, is that hell is a, a place of destruction and torment forever. Um, Anyway, and we have scriptural language to convey that. Yep. What about Jesus between his death and resurrection? Yeah. Yeah, so when it comes to descent, and you know, Sheol is another category. And this would get back to the, you know, the possibility of the soul sleep kind of notion. But the idea that there, are, there was a, sen a sense in which there were um, those to whom the gospel needed to be proclaimed who had died. Now, I don't know much more than that, but that's basically what's being referred to in so what, first or second Peter. Uh, so you're like saying Jesus went to hell and proclaimed Jesus to those yeah. in hell to be saved. Yeah, yeah. And so what's the nature of that? Uh, again, we're kind of dealing with some speculative sort of Should be careful things. not to suggest that Jesus suffered in hell. Yeah. Yeah, because he wasn't, he wasn't. Uh, he was perfect. Yeah. He was also going to be raised again. It is uh, a real mystery, though. I yeah. Mean, that's a great question. 
Yeah, it's a good question. One of the things that I've tried to do over the course of my ministry is be ambiguous where the scriptures are ambiguous. That's yeah. a Calvin theory. Yeah. The be clear where the scriptures are clear. He, he taught not to speculate. Mm -hmm. and he, yeah, Murray said you can speculate, but not to the point of heresy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. In other words, Calvin was not a, a, uh, into speculative theology. Right. Uh, so David's the divines. Yeah. I was waiting until Dick was done. So. <laughs> I'll, t I'll I tell you when I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> We could be here all day. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> well, it's kind of like Abraham's bosom. You always kind of, yeah. you know, it's like Abraham's bosom, you know. Right. Like, he's got a big bosom, you know, right. he's hanging out by it. You know, it's like right. one of those. Uh, but I was going back to purgatory. Um, I think the other thing is forgotten here. This is like written like over, over 100 years after Luther. And there was a big racket going on with indulgences. Mm -hmm. The church was making a bunch of money uh, getting people out of purgatory quicker, mm -hmm. you know, for yeah. specials are running, you know, get two souls, <laughs> buy two, get one free. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, they had a lot of uh, bills to pay, uh, you know, building St. Peter's was expensive. And, uh, Brittany? Yeah, isn't the, the term going to Sheol really your body going into the grave? And we do know that when Jesus was on the cross, he told the, the, the sinner that was next to him, today you will see me in paradise. So when Jesus died, for those three days, he was already in heaven. He wasn't anywhere else. And further on the passage and scripture about the section about um, how Jesus uh, went to capture, to, to free the prisoners, he's referring to people who are not saved, not that he was actually in hell. So it's, those are three different things that's, are separate from separate from each other so that's so i don't think it's so much of a mystery where jesus was those three days he was in heaven the center on the cross was next to him but sheol and and especially the passage of his baby going to sheol it's um from the study that i've had on sheol it's really just the physical body in the physical grave and it's not has nothing to do with hell and descent into the middle of the earth but those are some thoughts I have. Yeah, yeah, I think those are good thoughts. And uh, again, I'm, I'm at a place where I'm dealing with a set of things that I'm trying to make sense of but don't have clear, you know, uh, clarity on. So when we think about um, descending into the grave and the nature of Sheol, which, you know, what we one of the things I think we can keep in mind is that it was understood, at least by many in, in, in antiquity, as being a kind of shadowy realm. You know, so if you think about the episode with the Witch of Endor, which is an interesting one, or when you get uh, any kind of uh, necromancy, where you know you're you're consulting with the dead. Now, that's not I'm not endorsing that that, that was actually what was occurring, but definitely with the situation uh, you, with the Witch of Endor. We have this kind of remarkable encounter. Are you guys familiar with that, right? So Saul, you know, he wants he he, need, he needs some some sense of direction, and so um, he consults with this witch, and she, uh, you know, what is it? What are we are told? It's it's Samuel, right? And so yeah, this is not a good thing to do, but it's not. But we're not told it didn't happen. There's a sense in which this did happen. So how do you make sense of all that? I don't know, <laughs> you know, but that's the account we have. So 
Anyway, yep. I probably remember that Witch of Andor. Uh, Andor? Andor. Um, yeah. It's not like she's from Lord of the Rings or something, but. Uh, well, some of there's a lot of stuff that's based on that story. Is <laughs> she freaked out when Samuel showed up? Yeah. 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 She's yeah. like, whoa. Right. <laughs> you know, right. so that, that was. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, what was her state of mind that she was just making it all up? I, we don't know. Yeah. You know, it's, but there are a lot of a lot of interesting things that go on. I think the challenge that we have is when it comes to working with some of these um, episodes and trying to bring about a kind of perfect, I guess, uh, and uh, harmonized account. Uh, you, you end up oftentimes with some leftovers on the ground. Like, have you, have, you ever, have you ever, like, taken apart an engine and, like, put it back together again, you got some bolts on the ground, you say, oh, where did those go? <laughs> it's kind of like that. <laughs> it's kind of like that. You're just not really sure how to make it all work together. So what I'm, what I'm saying is I'm not God. My attempts and our attempts to try to make sense of everything in Scripture so that it's perfectly sort of you know, there are no loose ends, no, no questions. Um, I don't know if it's feasible for us to pull that off. There's just some stuff there that's like that. I'm not saying anything contradicts anything else. I'm not saying that uh, anything is false. I'm just saying I just don't, you know, as we're trying to sort of make a, a, a comprehensive picture, um, there are sometimes things that are left out. You know, we, we want to do the best we, we can. We, we don't want to leave too many bolts on the ground. <laughs> you know, that I'm getting at. Morley, mm -hmm. um, how do you know if what you believe isn't true? Well, I mean, there are things in Scripture that we uh, have that's very clear. You know, those are the things. I think that's the thing. You know, the thing we need to focus on is the clarity, clear things. So Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, that's pretty clear. Um, you know, God made the world, you know, and we have the account in Genesis, pretty clear. So there are things that are enormously clear. You know, this is one of the things that we're told in Scripture. There are some things that are ours to know, and there are things that only God knows. Remember the episode with Job? Weird thing about the episode with Job is at the very end, Job doesn't get any answers. It's like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, where were you? you know, at the end, he's like, of course, we have insight. You're like, you know, what, what's our insight? We got, you know, the, the, you know, the early sort of the, the, you know, the early account of what's going on in the heavenly court. But Job has never brought it in on that. So they text, they cross-reference Job. And uh, I think it's important for us as Christians to... Molly, know what you know, believe what you believe, because it's pretty clear. Some certain things are pretty clear. And this is one of them. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Right. And at last he will take his stand on earth. And this is something that, that we've been dealing with, cancer and head surgeries and deaths of infants. And it's a difficult world that we live in. Job was in his difficulty at this point. Yeah. He says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. I feel like Job always had that in the back of his mind. He was debating and debating and debating and even cursing maybe. But 
he didn't curse God and die, but as his wife suggested to do. Right. But there's this thing where eternity, eternal life, is the Christian hope. And and we ought to remember that. We only see people die. And infants die. You know, it's that baby purgatory, there's no such thing. Yeah, when it comes to things of that nature, when I'm dealing with people in grief, um, I don't think you want to give them false information, but you do want to give them hope. Well, for the Christian, let's just say, you know, this is for Christians. Right. Christian, this is the polemic of the hour. It wasn't pre post of all millennialism. It was the eternal judgment and heaven. Yeah. Right. So that's important to them. Yeah. It should be important to us as well. I think as we get older, you'll see when you get to be my age, these things are more pleasant. <laughs> and I think, you know, so here's the, the way I generally approach the subject of, you know, lost loved ones, and there's no clear sort of insight into what's become of that person. And the, the thing that I point to is, will not the judge of the earth do what's right? You know, you, you, you put your trust in God. He will do what's right. I'm not going to try to answer any questions about any of this kind of stuff. Just trust the Lord, and the Lord is trustworthy. Anyway. Um, well, let's, let's return here to this first. So, being made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens. There's an interesting th thought. Highest heavens. What's that imply? There are lower heavens. Right, highest heaven, lower lower heaven. So, uh, the third heaven. Recall uh, when Paul is referring. Is it Philippians? If I remember correctly, I think it's Philippians. He refers to uh, the third heaven. Um, the uh, idea is that there are levels. So, what would be the levels? Any any suggestions or thoughts? Because this is something that was pretty much kind of uh, standard, sort of conventional. Ways of thinking in the past. Yep. The two, the two levels below are the ones in the, the physical realm, and the third heaven is the spiritual. That's right. So uh, there's a marvelous illustration. I don't know if you've ever seen it, where there's this guy and his, he's like crawling, and he his head is going through the layers of the heavens. So the 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 first heaven is where the clouds are. You know, the dome of the sky. You know, the next heaven would be the celestial spheres the you know, stars and planets and so forth. But beyond that, which cannot be seen with the eye, uh, that's what we're referring to when we think of the third heaven. So it's spiritual in character. And it's not uh, a location. It's not like you can get in a rocket ship and just keep going and eventually arrive there. <laughs> that's not the way it works. Other thoughts? Is it dimensional? I mean, is it a fourth dimension? Well, you know, I, I'm not enough of a physicist or a mathematician to say anything about dimensions, but I think what, you know, say for example, when we talk about God trans, God's transcendence, God is not an object in the physical uh, you know, world, in the creation. Um, so there is a, we could say realm, but when we use the word realm, we get the idea of space. Space comes to mind and time comes to mind. So the, the Father uh, 
is, transcends all things, which means that both space and time are not things he's subject to, but he's Lord of. There's an important distinction there. So if you're in time, then you're in space. Space and time go together. Uh, but so the, this, this third heaven is uh, with, uh, you know, in the same character as that. I always think of how the third realm interacts with the earthly realm and uh, how the angels interact. And we're talking about dimensions, how they're literally, I mean, we don't know if there are literally angels right amongst us, but we know that they have been. We know that the, the, what they're made of, the spirit, can actually interact with the physical and has, biblically speaking. And it always reminded me of, um, well, I didn't read the book, sorry, but on the, the Lord of the Rings, how certain characters could actually fight the, uh, the nine dead kings with special swords, and that the spirit could actually interact with the physical. It just kind of it made something interesting to me, so that there are some aspects of God's realm that He allows and can touch. It's kind of fascinating. Well, Augustine is famous for having said, "The reason why God can be as nearer to you than than you even are to yourself is because He transcends creation." It's not like He's like uh, water in a sponge, because that's the that's the, the sense of that God is close because he's in everything. Uh, the, the conviction that Augustine is expressing is that God can be near everything because everything is radically distinct from him and he can be immediately present to everything. And so he can be closer to you than you are to yourself because he transcends all things. Again, we're, we're in the realm of mind-blowing kind of ideas. Um, and we are creatures who live our lives in time and space. So everything we uh, refer to when we're trying to talk about spiritual things is, you know, are things that we find in this world, you know, things that we're using in an, in, uh, in, by way of analogy to help understand. Anyway, uh, that's what you get when you start talking about life after death and <laughs> heaven and so forth. Now, uh, being in the presence of God, being made perfect, uh, nevertheless, there's something more. Isn't this interesting to note? Waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Now, I think that a lot of people wonder what use the body has if you're already in heaven. You know, what do you need that for? You're already in the presence of God. Uh, well, we're told in the scripture that, that the body will be raised and that uh, it'll be, you know, if we look at, say, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the bodies that, that will be raised are the, the ones that we will uh, see raised uh, in some sense are the same but different. Same but different. Um, let, me, let me take you to that passage. It's one that I think we ought to spend more time thinking about when we, we think about uh, the significance of our bodies. In some sense, our bodies uh, have a future, but in another sense, they don't. 
That's what you get when you start talking about this kind of stuff. You get, sound like you're contradicting yourself all the time. But in chapter 15, um, so here beginning at verse 35, Paul says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So, you know, obviously these are people who understood death a lot better than we do. They saw things die every day. They even put things to death just for dinner. Hey, get a chicken. We're going to have chicken tonight. Okay, mom. You know, he goes out and kills a chicken. <laughs> brings, brings the chicken in, plucks it, cooks it, dinner. That's the world of our ancestors. They, they were much more uh, acquainted with death than we are. So uh, Paul says in verse 36, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, and another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. That's an interesting distinction, heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And was the man of dust, and as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. So um, anyway, so this is an important framework within which to, to, to think about what we're, what we're discussing. Now, uh, what you have is something that is sown. It's a kernel, but it's transformed into something else. So what we have is a real resurrection of the body, and we see that in Christ, you know, there's an empty tomb, right? Not as, you know, he's, he doesn't come back as a ghost. Remember, he shows up with the disciples and says, you know, hey, what are you eating? You know, can I have some? <laughs> Eats with them. You know, so there are things to demonstrate and then, you know, they recognize him, although sometimes not right away, right? Think about the road to Emmaus. They don't, they don't recognize him until the breaking of the bread. And they say, oh, it's him, right? So there are, there are all these sort of uh, evocative uh, clues, sort of intimations, um, but clearly Christ can do things uh, as, a, as one who has been raised that we can't do. So there's a future for our bodies, but it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a transformation as well. That's important to keep that in mind. Yeah, Brent. Uh, just a couple of thoughts, because this is just a big thing for me. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest chapter in all of Paul's writings. 
He writes much more about the resurrection than he does about the intermediate state. Um, and then it's significant that Christ takes that body up into God's presence. Right. You know, the resurrection body is fit to live in the presence of God. Right. And and that's that's the significance of the ascension. Yeah. And and so it's just, you know, this because there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there that have this kind of hyper preterism view that like yeah. everything is fulfilled in AD seventy and it's right. they deny the resurrection of the body. Right. It's you know, people in our circles are kind of attracted to that view. And so we gotta watch out for it because it's you know, I I've had to deal with it in my ministry in the past. It's this is, you know, just really important, basic, fundamental Christianity that we're looking at here. Yeah, I mean, it, my response to the hyper-preterists is um, Romans 8. I mean, are we there? <laughs> you know, we have the creation groaning. Yeah, and that too. Yeah, so I think that uh, that's a really good point and something to keep in mind. There's a sense in which, uh, you know, uh, we still are waiting for something. And what we're waiting for is really important, and it transforms everything. It's a, it's a new heaven, new earth, new body. And this is where, you know, the, the you know, post-pre, this is where that becomes relevant. What are we talking about that? Yeah, yeah I was kind of tying this together, because I, I heard years ago, when I got into, like, difficult things, that the main things of the Bible are the plain things of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And you can really spend a lot of time on things that aren't really plain and go, you yeah. know, go into crazy places. Yeah. And we know, like it says, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which either die nor sleep, have immortal substance immediately return to God who gave them. Then you hear Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 31 33 says, And as far as, the, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham. God of Isaac, God of Jacob, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So these people have been dead, but they're, they're referred to as living. So we know, we're not sure what's going on, right? We don't know exactly, you know, are they hanging out with Abraham's bosom? Are they in Sheol? We can have theories and stuff like that. But we do know, I think it would be fair to say, as the Westminster says, that they're alive. That they, yeah. they, are, they are living. Right. What, what is their state, yeah. you know? Are, yeah. they, are they fully redeemed? Are they in their glorified bodies? No, we know they haven't. Right. We, we, we would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a good that's a good uh, thing to to note. So when we refer to the dead who have died in the Lord, they're alive. Yeah. You know, um, and the you know the promise that Brittany mentioned, you know, to the thief on the cross is, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. That. I think uh, is valuable information. I think you know as we're trying to again trying to hold it all together, trying to think about all the the, the various various possibilities. Um, you know, getting into things where we're not we're not really sure we're, we're the ground we're standing on is as firm as other places. I think it's where you you got to step lightly. You got to be a little careful. Um, I wish I could be more more concrete. But again, like I said, where things don't seem to lend themselves to that, I can't. Is it likely our difficulty in understanding the difference? We live in time and space. Yeah. And like you've talked about before, the eternal nature of God and eternity is not something we can relate to. And God lives in that. <clears throat> yeah. So how he sees the prisoner on the cross with him today mm -hmm. is different than our today, perhaps. Right? Well, that, yeah, that's a good point. You know, what, what does it mean? 
for us to say today and uh, how that corresponds to, to the eternal. Um, you know, I, I've, I've played this little mind game with people in the past, um, but it's intended to try to get across the idea that we really can't understand the way God, you know, things the way God uh, does. So if, if, if we were uh, in an eternal state, you know, at the point of death, are we waiting for anybody? It doesn't really make sense to say you're waiting if you're in eternity, if you get my, my drift. Now, I'm not saying that you need to take and do anything with that. <laughs> I'm just saying that it just gives you a, a picture of the limitations of our ability to apprehend what eternity is. is. So for God, it's, you know, he sees everything at once. Uh, you know, did, so let's think about it this way. Here's, here's a way to think about it. So when we think about God addressing Abraham and then God addressing, say, you or me today, uh, did any time elapse for God? No. Kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's as though he's speaking to us both at the same moment. Even though, from our perspective, centuries have passed. So, when you say from God's perspective, when he, God says, it's all over, I win, like it really is all over. Because <laughs> you know, he's also at that point in time as well. So, the promises that we have are not like, maybe he can pull it off. No, it's actually a report from the future, you could say. I was there. I am there, still there. <laughs> okay, I'm telling you how it worked out. <laughs> there you go. Okay, great. But we're still in time, and there's a lot of mystery about how it's all going to play out and, and all the details and stuff like that. Uh, it's like when someone, someone says, don't tell me the ending of the film. You don't want to ruin it for me. I'm like, you don't know how to watch films. Because uh, part, of, part of the fun is how it all plays out, you know, watching how it plays out. So we know the end of the story. Uh, there's still a lot of drama. <laughs> anyway, uh, I hope this has been helpful. I've gone over a bit in terms of time. The, the goal of this, of course, is to strengthen your faith, not to kind of get you thinking, you know, in some psychedelic way. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the confession and thank you for the promises that we have in your word. Help us, Lord, to hold on to the things that, that we understand and are clear. Help us, Lord, to trust you in matters that we have questions still about. In Christ's name, amen.